You're listening to the Practical Islamic Finance Podcast, where we help people globally build wealth in a halal way. We hope you find it useful and fun. Anything you hear in this podcast is not to be understood as personalized financial or investment advice and only represents the views of the speaker. Investing entails risk, including loss of principal. Be sure to do your own due diligence before you make any investment decisions. Some of the episodes of this podcast are audio versions of corresponding Practical Islamic Finance YouTube videos. If you want to watch the video version of the podcast, simply go to the Practical Islamic Finance YouTube channel. And now, without further ado, Bismillah. All right, assalamu alaikum, everyone. I'm very excited for the guest that we have today, Adam Taha from Amwal Network. Adam is an entrepreneur who previously worked in the banking sector in New York and also worked for the U.S. State Department. He earned two master's degrees, one in cybersecurity and the other in business from Penn State University. Currently, he is the CEO of Amwal Network, which is a digital assets management company and also includes a YouTube and podcast show focused on world economics and Bitcoin in Arabic. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Rakan. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Uh, by the way, congrats on the 200k subscribers on YouTube. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I mouth. couldn't believe it. You know, I, uh, yeah, it took a good amount of time, but I'm, I'm very proud. I'm happy. You know, it's been great. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, if you don't mind, Adam, just tell us a bit about yourself and sort of how you got to where you are in life right now and uh, Amwal Network and uh, Bitcoin Maximus as well. I don't want to take much of your time. I'll, I'll be very brief. I I was born in Iraq. Uh, most of uh, my friends and uh, on the show, the fans know that I was born in Iraq. And then we moved here to the United States at a, at a young age. And I, uh, I've always been fascinated at, from a very young age. I was told always that uh, kids usually gravitate towards either math, you know, math and numbers and statistics and stuff like that, or art and music. I don't know anything about music. I <laughs> wish I did, but I don't. I, I don't play any instruments. I don't even understand how. That's why I commend and I admire good artists, because to me, it's very difficult. So I gravitated. My mind went to math and stuff. So at a very young age, I didn't really focus on dinosaurs or anything like that. I've always been in love with math. And that's why in high school is when I started dealing a little bit with uh, money, working, uh, you know, random jobs, uh, minimum wage stuff, high school stuff. And I started stacking. I started understanding compounding interest. I started understanding personal finance. And then um, uh, college came around. I went into computer science. And then from there, I went into cybersecurity. And I got an MBA from Penn State, as you mentioned. But uh, my work was in the beginning in the private sector, banking and stuff like that. But then I went into the government. I worked for the government as a staffer, U.S. government, and traveled to many places. And then uh, when Corona started, but let me just take one step back and say that uh, Bitcoin, I heard, and I, well, we always said no before we said yes to Bitcoin. Bitcoiners understand that. And the first time I heard about it, uh, 2013, 2014, I said, no, that's a joke. It's, there's no way. But then I, it, it never left my mind. So I kept learning and learning as much as possible before jumping in. And I'm sure that's something we'll talk about later. But I got into Bitcoin at that time. And then I went to the government. And then after the government is when I, um, around 2020, around Corona uh, times, the pandemic and all, is when I uh, I resigned. I left my job and I went on to do my own thing. I've always wanted to do my own thing. And that's Amwal Network, focused solely on, mainly I would say Bitcoin. And uh, yeah, so I, I'm sure I forgot or dropped something here or there. But uh, yeah, that's the gist of uh, the story. That's very cool. Um, so why did you decide to actually make your channel in Arabic? Did you see uh, a need for something in Arabic that talks about Bitcoin and crypto? From my previous work in analysis, uh, I've always learned that an analyst uh, needs to find gaps, gaps in knowledge. Whenever you find a gap in knowledge, there will be questions raised about these gaps. So we do a request for information and that 
that's when I looked at the landscape of the Bitcoin uh, body of knowledge, the BOK, and I saw that we could talk about this, the linguistic challenges of Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, try explain it to a friend in a line or two or even a whole page, and they will walk away with more questions than before the explanation in English. So it's more geared towards an English speaking community, not not, you know, in a negative way at all. No, but because of code, really, the coding community, coding languages and everything they're, they're it's geared more towards an English speaking community and not just Arabic, but even Chinese, Russian, uh, Mandarin, of course, Russian and, and uh, uh, Turkish, uh, African languages, European languages, all of them have the same issue, which is converting that body of knowledge into a digestible understandable, friendly, user-friendly language. And I looked at the Arabic content and I saw there were many, many gaps. Most of it were was focused on speculation and some wrongful information at times. Some of it was intentionally malicious and some was just not knowing what's going on. So I wanted to step in and fill that. I, I could I could have made I had many requests of converting my channel Amwal uh, Network into an English-speaking one. But honestly, I think to me, it's not about revenue. We get our revenue through different sources. Uh, I, I just saw that there was plenty of English-speaking channels and content. So I thought that would be, I wouldn't add anything. So to make a, to do a value add in business, we always talk about value add to any uh, project. There would be a value add when it comes to Arabic content about Bitcoin. And that's why, uh, you know, I was like, I speak, I do both. I speak Arabic and I, a student of Bitcoin. So that's why I was, I, I got to do this and that, thank God it worked. So, yeah. and here we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can see how the biggest bang for your buck would be, you know, speaking in Arabic in a language where, you know, this topic is not addressed as much as it is in English Correct. specifically. So how do you think the level of knowledge has changed in, you know, these two years with the sort of average Arabic person in terms of their understanding of Bitcoin and, and crypto? Is it has it become mainstream? Do you think is there a good level of knowledge, the level of the average person right now? Or how do you see that? And how has it changed recently? So I think it's been very positive. The change has been very positive. Of course, we, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin community and everything we talk about there are two sides. There's the uh, technology side, uh, development side, and the uh, finance side, of course. And there's the speculation and the chart, the price you see online, that side. And, and most people are focused on that, understandably so. It's what everybody gravitates towards. It's, it's more fun because development takes years, technological developments take years. While the price changes every every two seconds, yeah. So and people and people see it as a gold part of Bitcoin to you know uh, take a piece of. So changing that view or not changing it completely or just directing people's attention to the technology side of it, it was really tremendously. First of all, hard at first, but second of all, very rewarding because we could sit here and talk about how the technology of Twitter works and we could talk about how phones work. We could talk about iPhones and talk about the battery and the chips and the A16 and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you cannot, you as a user, participate in how the iPhone works. You can't. It's, it's proprietary. It's controlled and owned by Apple, rightly so. And that's true for almost every other technology. Well, with Bitcoin, if you understand how it works and if you understand how the mechanics of the nodes and the mining and the user experience and tarot and developing other and, and lightning network, then you could participate. You could be part of that machine. You could be part of that chain or the, the network. And that's what I've been uh, trying to do. And that's what I saw so much success with a lot of people because they like being part of how the machine works. It's been tough, but it's been working. And and one last thing I will add is just, uh, it's a thesis. It's an, I haven't collected data on, it's just a theory I have when it comes to the Middle East in general. And that's, uh, we have two economies in the Middle East, uh, two different types of economies uh, and two different types of wealth level, I would say. Uh, the income and GDP per uh, per capita and all that stuff. We have countries, I'm not going to name names, I'm just going to say some countries have a high income ratio, have high GDP per capita, and they have a great economic system for wealth generation. 
and they rely on resources, natural resources, uh, oil, gold, whatever it is, anything it is. And you have other nations in the Middle East who have none of that. And they rely on their central banks to basically give aid and pump, inject money, liquid into the system. And those two different systems have different views of Bitcoin. Here's where I'm going to name a name. That There's a reason that a lot of people in Lebanon believe in Bitcoin. Right. Because of that economic system. While other nations, for example, in the Gulf countries and other places, they merely see Bitcoin as a speculation asset, like a stock, for example. So for people in these countries where wealth is generated through different means, various means through selling other resources, they don't need Bitcoin as a technology to change their system because the system works. While other countries that have higher poverty levels, uh, devalued currencies, bad economies, and no wealth generation and no resources. Those people see value. Those economies see value in Bitcoin as a way to get out of this dollar trap, the fiat trap. You know, that's that's just without me going deeper and further in the topic. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, interest in Bitcoin tends to be proportional to the rate of inflation in any particular country. So the, mm -hmm. the higher the rate of inflation, the higher the interest in Bitcoin. So uh, just taking a step back here, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, if you could give your sort of elevator speech for Bitcoin, you're in an mm -hmm. elevator, you know, someone asks you about Bitcoin before yeah. you get to the floor that you're going to, you need to communicate your case for Bitcoin. Yeah. What would you tell them? Elevator speech, let's say 30 seconds. Okay. Money it needs to have five traits. That's uh, it, it needs to be scarce, divisible, verifiable, portable, and durable. These five. And those five are true of Bitcoin only and probably gold a little bit. Other than that, it's all a scam, including the dollar. The U.S. dollar is based on a scam. The U.S. government, the U.S. dollar and central bank, they're all scammers. Bitcoin is the only one that where these five traits are achieved or could be found. All right. Even though you're at your floor, I still have many questions for you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but okay. Got it. So the claim of Bitcoin is, is pretty clear from what you said. So what about Bitcoin made you say, aha, and just sort of change from a skeptic to a believer? Was there any moment like that where you're like, oh, now I get it. Now I'm on board. Was there a particular sort of aspect about it that you learned that made you change your conviction? No, I'll tell you why. Because to understand and truly believe in Bitcoin and Bitcoin's future and the value of Bitcoin, to truly do that, you need to truly understand the US dollar. The more you learn and dig and understand the US dollar and how it works and the fiat system in general, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. It's one of those things. It's, it's not by studying itself, it's by understanding how the dollar works. Now, if we step back, and talk about why why was gold let's let's pay attention to something important here bitcoin is only what 12 13 years old that's it it's very young it's very young so let's you know evaluate and talk about dollars and and gold gold was the original currency and the store of value and blah, blah blah all that stuff but why people for millennia for many many years for hundreds and thousands of years exchanged goods for services or services for goods some type of credit system but then i'm talking about for example a rice farmer would give a statue of rice to a, a person who owns some cattle for some meat so that but the barter system and more of a really credit system humans were on a credit system way way before even gold and uh it's more than the barter system and then when nation states rose and that's when governments and empires and kingdoms rose they started really needing and some of them wanting to raise armies to raise an army you're not going to pay them with rice you're not going to pay them with apples you're not going to pay them with anything else you're going to pay them you needed gold and and for one simple reason, really, it's not because it's shiny or anything like that. It's for one, one, one only simple reason. And that is nobody can make gold. That's it. 
nobody can make gold. You need to dig. You need to dig the earth. You need to break the earth. Spend on labor. Spend on uh, spend time. Spend on equipment and other things to get gold out of the ground and make it and refine it enough to make it useful for exchange as a currency. So you need proof of work. That's where proof of work comes from. You need to work. You need to put the effort, put the work and the time and the money to get gold out of the ground and make it usable. And that's when gold and then silver, of course, both had those traits in them and had that process to get them. When raising armies is when they started having uh, value, more value. But then as time went on, that gold and silver became more and more and more valuable. So a gold coin, we all know this a thousand years ago, a gold coin could maybe get you uh, 10 nights at a hotel <laughs> back you know, a thousand years ago or uh, a small farm or something. But today that not a small farm, sorry, like a, a few crops, maybe. But today that gold coin is more valuable. A gold coin is more valuable than 10 nights at a hotel or something like that. So what happened is a few hundred years ago, there was the security issue and people storing gold had the issue of it not being portable. It's difficult to carry gold and it's also difficult to divide gold into little pieces to get coffee or to get food. So what happened is people started storing gold at the goldsmith, for example, what we later became the bank. And that started in uh, with the Medici families in Florence and in Italy, where people started storing gold in banks, in the vaults, and the bank would give you a receipt, a receipt that you have gold in the vault. Everything I'm talking here takes hundreds of years in a process, an evolutionary process for money. And then people started, instead of exchanging gold, for example, if I wanted to buy something from Rakan, I wouldn't give you gold, I would have that receipt in my hand. I would go to the bank and I would take some gold and give it to you. And that's how it was. But then people realized, I don't need to go back to the bank to get my gold. I could just give you the receipt. And that receipt, the paper, became money later on. And the banks realized that, oh my goodness, I have all this gold here. I could make even more money by lending it out. And that is the crux. That is the, the root of the fiat system, the dollar, because when they started lending it out, and that's what we call the fractional reserve banking. And when they started lending it out to other banks and to other entrepreneurs and to landowners and to whatever reason, banks lending to banks, lending to banks and lending to banks, it became a very tangled mess. And that's when when things um, so the whole system started getting uh, the supply issue instead of. So when you deposit gold, you're given a receipt. The supply of gold in the market is static, so you could measure pricing, uh, the pricing signal based on that supply level. But when you lend it out, now there is double the supply of gold in the market, and that's when you corrupt. There's corruption in the system now, corrupting the pricing signal. So imagine you have a tape measure. If you want to measure something, you know that 10 centimeters or 10 inches is that. But when you start lending fractional reserve banking, the price signal gets corrupted. So it's like having a meter. Uh, 10 inches are not 10 inches anymore. They're maybe 11 or 20 or 30. Changes depending on the supply of gold or currency in the market. And that's to this day, that still exists. The fractional, actually, the fractional reserve banking doesn't exist even any longer. There was a uh, I think David Weiss or someone was mentioning this and even Zoltan was talking about it. Fractional reserve banking doesn't exist anymore because now the the requirement by the central banks is 0%. Sorry, I'm going off on, on really deep end stuff, but... Uh, no, it's useful to know this history. So yeah, carry on if you'd like about gold and uh, I'm assuming you're, what you're moving towards is how Bitcoin compares, basically. Yeah, one last thing is, is uh, when gold was being lent out, and people, when things were going bad because uh, there's a lot of leverage in the market and the economy is going bad because of that uh, boom, boom and bust cycle, uh, we started getting a run on the bank, meaning those people with the receipts 
most of them didn't know that their gold was not in the bank anymore. It was being lent out. So we started having a run on the bank because these receipts are pieces of paper. Gold is gold. So they started going running to the bank, but the bank doesn't have the gold. Now, fast forward and we get uh, the same issues happening since the 1700s, 1800s. We start. We kept having the, these cycles, these run on the bank cycles until 1913. 1913, I believe it was 1913, is when the U.S. Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of America, was founded in 1913. And the reason is very simple. The reason is because when banks were uh, giving out loans, private banks were giving out loans and giving all that money and receipts and everything, fractional reserve banking, they were carrying the risk. The risk was on the banks. So when there's a run on the bank, it's the bank that is in risk. To transfer this risk to another central, now we're coming to centralization. To transfer that risk to a central authority, the central bank or the Federal Reserve was founded in 1913. And that's when we get even a bigger problem because after seven, eight years, we get, uh, I believe the 1921 crash. And then eight years after that, we get the 1929 or 19, 1930 crash, which was the Great Depression. So from 1913 to 1930, what is that? 17 years? We've got two big crashes. I'm talking like people didn't have food to eat in those times in America. And the world also suffered a lot. So it's not a coincidence. From the foundation of the Federal Reserve, the bank, 1913 to 1930, there were two major crashes run on the banks and major crashes that hurt the people. So the bank said, you know what? I'm going to store all the gold. I'm going to collect all the gold. So the Federal Reserve, and that's when FDR signed the bill to have the bank, the Federal Reserve, accumulate all the gold and centralize all the gold that was in the bank's vaults into the Federal Reserve vaults in New York City and in uh, uh, Fort Knox and other places. So, and of, of course, after that, 1945, we get the war. I'm sorry, 1938 is uh, the war, the war, the World War II war. So a lot of uh, European countries needed to spend a lot of their gold to uh, fund their war efforts or fund their government operations and their countries and nations and everything. But then because of the instability in Europe, even more gold was centralized by sending it to America. That's why a lot of countries like France and Germany and others sent their money, their gold to America. So now the Federal Reserve is the biggest centralized power for all the gold in the world, most of the gold in the world. Actually, the the Federal Reserve was paying gold miners in Indonesia and other parts of the world double, double the price of gold at the time in the 30s and 40s and 50s in an effort to centralize it, to suck out all the gold around the world and centralize it. And that's what happened. And the fiat system uh, was based on that gold that backed it. But then in 1971, because we are in America addicted to, as you know, addicted to debt. We always operate and, and have uh, massive operations, government operations and programs and efforts and war and so many other things and programs. We could talk about the budget and if you want. And they uh, so that was a tool that needed to be used. It needed to be used in America. You can't. So that's when a lot of countries said, we want our gold back. You are devaluing those receipts that we have now in Europe, the receipt, the dollar. It's not a good pricing signal anymore because you keep printing, give us our gold back. And then Nixon said, you know what? 1971, we're going to deep peg. We're going to decouple the dollar from the gold while still holding gold. Well, some of you could have your gold back, but here we are. That's why the fiat system is corrupt. It's a, it's a corrupt pricing signal. It's a scam coin. That was, uh, I think, uh, a useful sort of walk through history in terms of how we got here. Now, are you calling it a scam because what gets printed is not backed by gold anymore? That and also it's it's forced upon us by an old system that doesn't work, but it, it keeps it. So America's uh, policy usually is kick the can down the road. Ever since 1776, every issue we live with today that divides American society divides us because it wasn't solved in, in, in a lot of uh, the original documents in the foundation, just because we kick the can down the road. And the dollar, when we it was depegged from gold, instead of solving that issue and talking about some key methods of 
having that dollar backed by something real, by uh, land or labor or some other commodity or mainly gold, really. Instead of that, we are reliant on the promise. I promise you <laughs> that this dollar has value by adding it on the balance sheet as debt that future generations will have to pay. They issue debt instead of actually having uh, any backing to it, any commodity in the Federal Reserve or any other banks. And it's forced upon us by so many treaties and agreements, for example, the oil agreement, that's why it's called the petrodollar, for example, is because uh, oil is priced in dollars. The world trade system works on dollars. It, that's it, for so many political and military uh, reasons that are a, a different topic, but that's why I call it a scam coin. It's a centralized uh, coin very centralized coin that has no cap on the supply. They could print as many as they want. There is no point sometimes, you know, some people will say, what's the point of having uh, value to it? Because you keep printing, but uh, now they're trying to reverse that print and devaluation by tightening. And that's its own topic and raising the interest rate and everything. But I mean, it's the system is addicted to debt, honestly. I think the 2022 budget in the United States, not the budget, but uh, tax receipts are $4.8 trillion for 2022. I believe it's 4.8 or 4.7. Well, entitlement programs, as you know, entitlement pro programs for retirees, for uh, all kinds of uh, Medicaid, Medicaid, everything, all, the, all these programs are about 3.7. So 4.8 are the tax receipts. 3.7 trillion are the uh, the entitlement programs. So that leaves us with what? 1.1 trillion. Well, the defense budget alone is about seven, 800 billion. So now we have about 400 billion left. Three, 400 billion left are not enough to cover interest alone because interest on our debt, the national debt, which is what, 30 trillion? Interest alone is about, I think, 500 billion. So... Yeah, those four point eight trillion dollars are not enough to cover entitlements, defense budget, and the and the interest on that debt. So what do you do? You either raise taxes. Nobody will do that. Politicians, Democrats, and Republicans are not going to do that. They will not raise taxes. You have three options: either raise taxes, they're not going to do that, or reduce uh, entitlement programs or the defense budget or anything like that. They're not going to do that. We both know they're not going to do that. So what is the third option is print more money. You need to print more money added as debt on the balance sheets. What I'm saying is they need to borrow more. So it's it's never ending. So that's why it's a scam coin. Yeah, I, I don't think any like two Americans who know what the budgetary situation of the country is will disagree on the fact that there's a lot to be worried about. Uh, and, you know, issuing money through debt is a really asinine way of doing it. <laughs> it's just, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, unlimited supply. An exercise in, in foolishness that I don't think, you know, seldom humanity has done something this foolish for this long of a time. But I think the reason why we have been doing it is because so far we've managed to keep the system afloat. But mm -hmm. who knows, you know, how long that can last. I think the dollar in particular, when compared to other fiat currencies, is in a privileged position. And you can see that in terms of its pricing compared to other traditional currencies because of its status as a reserve currency. So that other countries, their products and services also support the price of the dollar, which allows the United States to print a lot more than uh, it could get away with if it wasn't the reserve currency. Yeah, so I think what you said makes a really good uh, argument for why saving in the U.S. dollar is perhaps not the wisest of decisions if you have, uh, you know, a long-term outlook on your savings. So uh, now the, I guess, the question that suggests itself is, okay, how does Bitcoin solve this problem? Why is Bitcoin a better savings mechanism uh, than uh, the U.S. dollar. And I think that's something that is going to be asked perhaps in the mind of the listener is, all right, so the U.S. dollar is not, you know, tethered to anything. It's not backed to, uh, by anything like it used to be. It's not backed by gold. Um, what is Bitcoin backed by? And why is why is Bitcoin any better? 
Excellent question. So let's uh, talk about storing value and then take it in to answer your this question. Storing value. So people, a lot of people, when they hear you say being in dollars is not a good idea, they will retort or say, but the dollar is up. The DXY, the dollar, the wrecking ball of the dollar that destroys everything around it is up. It's up a lot in the last few months. The euro is what? It's it's under parity now. It's 99 cents. So how can you say that the dollar is bad or not a good uh, value to hold right now? And, and the answer is very simple. It's when you look at these assets and look at your wealth, your personal wealth, your personal finance, you want to send the value of whatever you're holding today into the future without having it, let's say 10 years, without having it lose purchase power. If I use apples, apples or bananas, as a store of value into the future, let's say 10 years, I put them in a box, and 10 years later, I open that box and there will be nothing. I'll rot it away and it's gone. There is no value remaining. If I put a stack of cash in a box and open it 10 years later or in a bank and go back to it 10 years later, that cash that had bought me a piece of land in the past 10 years ago will probably not be able to buy me that same piece of land 10 years later. It did not hold its purchase power. It's still, let's say $10,000. It's still $10,000, like units. It's still 10,000 units, dollars. But the purchasing power because of deflation and the value of it and the growth in value in other assets, especially land, drives us into the value that is being transferred between two points in time. It's sending it, it's like a time machine. You're sending it through time. So that's why land, gold, silver, land, these assets are not controlled. It takes me back to what I said 10 minutes earlier, 10 minutes ago about nations wanting to raise armies using something that cannot be made by anyone. The dollar is made and controlled by someone, not, not a person necessarily, but an entity and a political power. Imagine if bananas were used as currency and store of value, then the producers of these bananas are in control of that currency. Gold, there is no geographic location that produces gold in the world. Gold could be found anywhere in the world. Oil could be found anywhere in the world. Silver, probably the same thing. And other metals, also the same thing. And that's where Bitcoin comes in. Bitcoin is not controlled by anyone. It's not controlled by anyone. You hear a lot of famous names talk about Bitcoin, but they're just figures in the Bitcoin orbit, really. It's not, they just go around. Bitcoin is the core. It's not controlled by anyone. It's not controlled by any name or company or anything. The gold, uh, the dollar is, gold is not. And we could talk about the security versus commodity and the how we test and all of that stuff. But that's key. It's understanding the value through time. Now, if I give you Bitcoin, if I give you 10 Bitcoins today, 10 years in the future, it will also, just like the dollar, have 10 units of Bitcoin in your wallet. But the value will be way, way larger for one simple reason. It has a supply cap. We know the inflation rate and nobody could make any more of it. No one. And if people think, oh, but you just said it's young, it's 13 years old. Why not? Maybe, you know, in the future or they will talk to you about quantum computing and all that nonsense. But they, they don't realize that many governments, including the U.S. government, Chinese government, European government, a lot of other governments tried. They tried hard to control the Bitcoin network and to create more Bitcoins and to do the double spend and everything. And they all failed. That's why no government today talks about banning Bitcoin because they can't. They just can't. But they what is can't. backing it's, it? It's, it's so funny. OK, what is it backed by? It's backed by the power and the effort, the proof of work that we talked about that was placed into making it. Gold, why does gold have value the moment it comes out of the ground? Let's say we go back 10,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, and there were maybe, I, I, I'm not the expert on sociological matters, but let's say there, were, there was one company or one group of people that mine gold. That group of people spent time, time, 
They spent resources to get equipment, even if they had to build them. And they spent their labor and they spent food and other expenditures to dig that gold out of the ground. So the moment it came out of the ground, it has value because it was backed by all these intangible efforts and resources. Well, I guess the fear that people have is that supply, what you're referring to, like the work that people put into mining gold gives it value. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily, that's not the entire picture uh, because the of entire picture not. is that there has to be like demand for that thing. And just because mm -hmm. it takes work to produce something doesn't mean it's going to have value. So I think uh, what people get nervous about regarding Bitcoin is that, okay, I, I get the part where people are putting in work for you know it to actually exist. There's a lot of actual uh, computational effort that goes into creating Bitcoin. But what's mm -hmm. the guarantee that this demand persists into the future? Like, what's the guarantee that someone doesn't come along and create some other similarly scarce, you know, crypto asset that is somehow superior to Bitcoin in one aspect? And, you know, demand shifts away from Bitcoin to this new crypto. What's tethering demand to Bitcoin long term? The five traits in any currency. The first one I mentioned earlier was scarcity. You mentioned that gold, what it's not just the uh, effort put, in, put into it. Of course not. You could uh, spend a lot of effort getting or digging harder stuff out of the ground. That by itself does not give it value. It's a scarcity as well. We need to, because it's the five things, the durability, the divisibility, but the even scarcity. scarcity. Even scarcity takes into account demand. Like when you see yes, something yes, is demand. scarce, you're assuming that there's demand for it. If, if there's like one NFT, let me give the example of an NFT. Mm -hmm. There's only one NFT, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, but there's no demand for it, let's say. That NFT, technically, it's it's not really scarce. It's actually uh, too uh, abundant because there's no demand for it. Okay. There's more I supply than there is demand. On I have to disagree here. And we, we need to establish one thing is that an NFT... Sure, there's one of it. And I I could make a pen, a super pen, that there's only one of it and you know, name it name a price of million dollars. But does anyone want it? No. And the reason is very simple. You need to have a difference between commodities and securities. We need uh, to establish that first just, before we talk. The NFT was just an example. Let's say I have, you know, a cap to my water bottle. There's no other cap like this, <laughs> quite like this. Yes. Anywhere in the yes. world. But would you say that this is necessarily scarce if no one wants it? Not really, because no one wants it. In fact, in relation to the demand for it, it's probably too abundant. That's what my, let me, my point is. Let me use a metaphor. Let me use a metaphor. Okay. So we all have phones. I'm going to use this metaphor to make it more digestible to all listeners. So uh, the iPhone. The iPhone is the base platform for the apps on that iPhone. So we have apps, Different apps, thousands of apps, hundreds of thousands of apps work on the iOS that is placed on the physical phone itself that works on the network, whether it's Verizon, AT&T or any other network that relies on the Internet. You see, so we need to establish that an NFT or uh, the cap or the pen or anything else is like an app on that system. The system, let's call it layer one or layer two in the blockchain world, the phone is probably layer zero. And then we have the uh, the whole protocol. The internet really is where Bitcoin is. Because it's a commodity, not a security. Because NFTs and any other things, that the bottle cap that you mentioned, or my pen or any other thing, is, is not something that I could use me as a purchaser of that cap or that pen. I cannot use it to build something else. I can use it only for as a speculation tool. If there is demand, I could build up demand for it, marketing and other ways to find another buyer for it. That's the story with NFTs. We just finished NFTs. <laughs> That's an NFT lesson. But with Bitcoin, the demand for it is not because of scarcity alone. No, it's because it's a protocol to build more things on, to work on, to transfer value, to do so many things. Gold was used to build armies, to run governments, to do all these great things and to store value and to, to make banks profitable and to you, you build an economy. Bitcoin is the same. 
Bitcoin actually is 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 akin really to land as well. And and when it comes to scarcity, see land people buy and sell because they could not only speculate on it. Speculation is a small part of it, but you could build on it. You could store on it, and you know for a fact that nobody could make more land unless it's natural uh, a natural pro process. You cannot make more land. You cannot manufacture more land. In the same sense, you could make more bottle caps, and you could make you yourself as a centralized figure, or more pens, or whatever it is, or NFTs. But does it have a use, a use case for people? And that's really the question here. It's not just scarcity. Scarcity is one element. Bitcoin, the use cases for it are not just me buying it, storing it for three days and then selling it for a higher price. It's not only just for sending back and forth. No, we could still use dollars today and send these dollars, like for example, the Strike app, I could send you dollars or you could send me dollars on the Bitcoin network. A lot of people don't know that for one goal, and that is to cut out Visa and MasterCard and, and PayPal and all the third party middlemen that stand in the middle. You could send me dollars without any middle entity. How, how could you do that? On the Bitcoin network. Bitcoin is not just a thing or a digital asset. It's a protocol. It's a protocol to transfer value between different parties. Right. And I could uh, use it to build stuff. Got it. So your argument is basically that the utility of Bitcoin guarantees that there will be demand into the future. Um, so what gives you comfort in that this utility will not be provided by some other like protocol or you know, invention that takes demand away from uh, Bitcoin. What gives you confidence that this is not an event that can happen? Okay, so is Bitcoin the fastest network to transfer value? No. Uh, is it the only uh, utility provider? No, that's not the issue. People always say, oh, this coin or this network or that coin does this better, does that better. Who cares? Nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. What we care about is a decentralized trade, a decentralized characteristic, decentralized reality in Bitcoin. So all these other companies and all these cryptocurrencies and, and projects and so are made by a group of people who hold control, total control over that coin or cryptocurrency or token. You could use it to send money, but at the same time, you're putting your faith into that person or that group or these developers or that company. And from Ethereum all the way down are all centralized without any without any exceptions. Oh, so you see all no other crypto projects that are decentralized. Bitcoin is the only one. Correct. Okay. And and people say, prove it. Um, I hope you ask me to prove it. So to prove it, this will take me 20 seconds. <laughs> so if you want to make a decentralized project or decentralized coin, where is it going to work? Like, for example, Google Drive, let's say, or Zoom, this uh, software we're using right now. Zoom, how are we communicating? Where is Zoom hosted? Servers. Those servers are owned by Zoom. Google Drive, all your files are stored on servers owned by Google. Because that data needs to be hosted somewhere. And we need to communicate using something, especially servers. In a decentralized network, there are no servers. It's the nodes. It's the nodes. Like you and me, Rakan and Adam, could make a coin using two nodes. A node you own and a node I own. If we want more people to join the network, they would have to run their own nodes to be part of that network. Now, if you want to be part of, for example, Solana or any other project, you could purchase Solana, like any coin or token or anything like that and use it and utilize it and send fast payment, like a split second payment. But who owns the nodes? That's the question. Who owns these nodes, aka servers and a decentralized network? And you'll find out it's usually companies and developers and entities, sometimes banks, corporations, any type of entities. Can you become a validator or a node in many of these, including Ethereum? Well, you could, but the requirements are so high that it becomes a gatekeeping practice, meaning only if you have 32 Ethereums, you could become a validator. How many people, in your opinion, have 32 Ethereums to become a validator? Uh, a low can number, a but, person... but there are yeah. like pools. You can like pool your Ethereum with other people to... to... Okay. As a pooler, as a pooling person, can you become a decision maker? No. In Ethereum, they ram jammed their upgrade and their hard fork as well in a few days without any vote or input from any validator, any node, anyone. 
It's the decision makers that make the decision and it happens. And Vitalik, everybody knows, everybody knows that he rolled back the chain, what was it, in 2017? <laughs> I yeah, think it was think 2016, so. yeah. 2017, rolled back the chain. So what's the point of having a blockchain ledger on uh, Ethereum if he, one person and his guys could roll back the chain? So that's what when we got Ethereum Classic. But in Bitcoin, you could become a node, a full voting, a full, fully self-governing node for 200 bucks or less. Now, people will say, oh, we never needed the power of nodes in the past. No, we did. In 2017, when all the exchanges and all the big companies and the big miners said, we need bigger blocks, there were only one group, one cohort that said, nope, we don't like this. You could do your own thing, miners. You could do your own thing, banks and companies, but we're not going to approve it. And the nodes won. And to this day, we have a small, what is 1.2, 1.3 on average block size, megabytes. Who did that? It was the nodes. And that's what we call the block wars. It started in 2015 and then 2017. And we basically said, we have the power. People think miners have the power in Bitcoin. Nope, it's the nodes. The nodes, the nodes and the miners are two separate entities. In Ethereum, they're one, the validators. The validators validate and make and blah, 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 all that stuff. It's just, it's a joke. And Bitcoin, no, the miners are separated from nodes. Nodes are the governors, basically. They validate and govern and vote and all that stuff. The miners just issue. They also validate as well, but they issue. They're, they're, and they're subject to the uh, mining economics, which is they need to spend a lot of money to produce, to make coins, and they need to sell them because they spent a lot of money. So with time, their, their centralization decays with time. And when I say time, I mean a week, two weeks, six months, a year maximum maybe, because they're under financial pressure to sell to fund their operations. It's the nodes. No other coin, no other token has that. No one. Sorry, I'm talking yeah, too much, sense. but that's... Yeah. No, I've always I've always seen the power of uh, Bitcoin in the network that it was able to establish. Like if I'm going to give a very r- rough analogy, like there were a lot of companies that attempted to create like a social networking platform after, you know, Facebook, for example. But none of them really actually got much momentum because so many people were already connected to Facebook. Mm-hmm. So the network sort of acted as a moat against, you know, new entrants. And now that you have, you know, so many people on the Bitcoin network, it's very hard for, you know, another sort of project to to replicate that. And especially the aspect of decentralization is a moat that's tough to overcome. So that makes sense to me. So do you see any merit in like smart contracts or any other like applications of blockchain technology? Or do you really see only merit in the use case that Bitcoin has offered? No, of course there's merit. I just disagree with the speed and implementation. So many people, especially even in the Bitcoin community, don't know that smart contracts actually started on Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin network. Like I said, Bitcoin is the base. It's the foundation. On top of it, we could build stuff, including smart contracts. And you could look in the color coins. The color coins are actually the first, probably the first implementation of just testing and toying with smart contracts on the Bitcoin network. And that was in 2014, 2015. And one of the developers that was working on the Bitcoin network on color coins, guess who? It was Vitalik Buterin. Vitalik Buterin was working on the color coins on the Bitcoin network. But then one day he said, Nah, I'm going to do my own thing. He, I don't know what he did, but smart contracts have merit. It's just Vitalik and his minions and his guys and, and other coins, all of them have that desire to be faster. They want to do it, get to market. It's it's the first to market. And in the business world, we understand that first to market sometimes is better. Even if you deliver a mediocre product, it's better to get to market first. So we have a lot of uh, chains, a lot of coins, a lot of tokens race. They just want to race to get to that market. 
And that's why we have contracts, smart contracts on, on uh, Ethereum get to market first because <laughs> Vitalik basically took what, whatever he learned and implemented there and delivered quickly before testing. That's why we have a lot of problems, a lot of scams, a lot of breaches, a lot of uh, bridges issues and so much more problems because they're, they're just worried about getting to market quickly. On the Bitcoin network, it takes years and years and years to test and vote and, and do so much to implement these changes because every, and I like that because every change needs to be close to perfect. And one of the smart contracts, fast forward, of course, from Color Coins all the way now, like Lightning Network, we also have the Tarot. The Tarot, actually, the Tarot, T-A-R-O, uh, it has implementations of NFTs, implementations of smart contracts, and implementations of so many things, um, wrapping, uh, blending, and, and, and securing, and collateralizing, and, and all that stuff, but at, at a small level, but mainly NFTs and other stuff, mainly for passports, for example. One of the things I heard some people talk about on Tarot is... Passports. Imagine not having to carry a physical passport or ID on you because you have that NFT style tarot contract on you that proves you are who you are on the Bitcoin network. You don't need to create a new token. That's the beauty of it. You don't need to create a new token. They're all contracts on the network. So sorry, I'm talking too much. But my, my point here is there is merit to smart contracts. It's just the speed and implementation really that works. They just other coins and other chains and developers, they just want to just stay. They steal from the Bitcoin community's ideas and developments, and they rush to make their own coin and token and get to market as soon as possible and get listed on an exchange and then watch the coin just go down to zero while the developers make a lot of money and walk away with it. And then they go and rinse and repeat, do the same thing again. So is it safe to say you only have Bitcoin in your crypto portfolio? Yes, 100%. Got it. Yes. Yeah. I think that really answers the uh, the question about <laughs> merit <laughs> in a pretty yeah, decisive way. Just... Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about where you see the market right now. And obviously, I take you are a, a long-term hodler. Other people perhaps have less conviction in Bitcoin and perhaps are nervous about the recent price drop. What do you think is the state of the market right now? And how do you see the future? So my my way of uh, looking at the market, my way of investing, it works for me, but for many people, it doesn't. And um, I don't like when I like, for example, I don't want to tell people that do this, invest this way because it works for me. It might not work for other people. Every person has their own investing goals and strategies and life setting and family. For me, Bitcoin is for inheritance reasons. I will not sell. I will never sell. It will be only used. I will pass it down to my kids and their kids, hopefully. That's that's my goal. Just like land, you know, like people always talk. And I mentioned this to another friend and different show. I said, imagine if you could go back, let's say, three, four hundred years ago or 200 years ago would uh, to New York City. Wouldn't you like to buy a big piece of land in New York City or have your grand, 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 grandfather buy you a nice piece of land in New York City and store? it and pass it down to you wouldn't that be nice same thing with bitcoin same thing same concept same idea if i sell it now my daughter and her kids in the future a hundred years in the future will just they will just <laughs> just imagine that the pain they will feel they knew i had it and i sold it so i will never sell so the current market today it's like we mentioned the beginning of this episode is the market or the economy in general is addicted to debt. Now, is it the fault of the banks? Nah, that's I worked in banking and it's debatable. Part of it is it's, yeah, sure, it's the fault of the bank's faults, but there's also demand for debt. People want to buy the latest Mercedes. People want to buy the latest iPhone. People want to get the best stuff, the latest and the coolest Louis Vuitton bag. They want that, but they don't have the income for it. And that's true in the housing market. People want to buy a nice house on the lake. Do they have $2 million for it? <laughs> some do, some don't. Probably the most, the majority don't. Even those who do would rather not freeze their assets in a house and borrow against what they no. have. Yeah, exactly. Apple has more cash than the U.S. government, 
yet Apple uses debt to fund its projects because that's a smart way of doing it. Why use your own cash money? You could use debt, especially when debt is cheap, use debt. But for people, they demand debt. And then, so it leverages the market. And when there's demand for debt, you will find supplier for debt, not just the banks, but other companies as well. They will supply that debt if there's demand for it in exchange for a specific interest rate and, and a specific amount of time. And that's how you make profit. It's normal. It's okay. That's business. But what happens when, you know, because after every leverage, we need to do deleverage. That's, it has to be. A plane goes up, a plane has to go down, has to land. It's physics, it's natural order of things. And with every leveraging process, there is a deleveraging process. Right now we're going through deleveraging. It's painful, but it's, it's a must. Now, how much deleveraging can the bank do before it breaks something? That's why they always talk, the bank, Jerome Powell always talks about soft landing. There's a reason for that, because that plane needs to land softly. It went so high, and now it's landing. But can they land softly, or is it going to be rough? Is he going to break something when he lands, or they land? And that's the current market. That's what's happening. Deleveraging really means pooling liquidity and sucking out liquidity out of the market. That easy debt, that demand for debt is, is going away now. So everybody's pulling the money. There's more risk. Everybody's sitting on cash, waiting for things to get better so they could spend cash. So cash is not moving. Everything is in dollars. Everything is waiting. And a lot of investors are also pulling their money away. Very few are investing in anything. So that's what the state of the market is doing right now. We need indicators to, for the market to rebound again. When is that going to happen? Unknown. We could just be safe from a risk management perspective. It's safe to say late 2023 or maybe 2024, early 2024 is when we see. So early 2023, first quarter, second quarter, 2023, we might see hints of recovery, maybe. Just a little good, healthy uptrend, just a tiny bit. Now, I'm not talking about mooning. <laughs> I'm talking about just a tick up, just a little bit. But maybe late 2023, maybe, uh, or or uh, early 2024 is when we probably, hopefully, uh, recover much more than now. So, But now it's a highly risky, highly volatile time. So are you we can talk still about, dollar cost yeah, averaging or are you waiting to... I always, yeah, I always DCA, and it's usually on Wednesdays. Wednesdays is my uh, my favorite day for DCAing, and it's automatic. I don't even look. I don't even look at the amount of Bitcoin because uh, psychologically, it's good to just. I send it to a cold wallet. It's automatically sent, so I don't even know how much is there. I don't check. Yeah, very cool. Do you look at Bitcoin miners at all? Do you are you interested in like investing in those at all, or just Bitcoin? You mean their stocks? Yeah. Right so. now, no. Uh, mining economics is subject to uh, quarterly uh, statements and uh, as as do mo all businesses but miners are under pressure to sell always especially if they need to recover especially if, if the cost of their coin is let's say $15,000 for example then they have to sell above 15,000 they need to and if it goes below 15,000 they they are they have to their CFO will make them sell for at you know a maximum amount of loss, let's say three uh, percent or five percent or whatever it is, and I think it's is a very young industry. That's why I would say I'm not investing right now. But will I invest in the future? Yeah, most likely. But right now, I believe they're very young, and I think they will have more a better chance at at growing their value of their stocks after 2024. That's when the having around maybe March or April 2024 is one day we will get the next halving, and maybe then we will get a better opportunity for uh, entry in early 2024 for these mining stocks. But right now, no. Right now, I put it in Bitcoin, which is the underlying, sorry, underlying asset is Bitcoin. So yeah. Makes sense. This was really useful, Adam. I really enjoyed it. I always like to push my guests on their thoughts. And uh, I feel like that helps educate the listener and that helps us actually arrive at better ideas. So I feel like that happened in this uh, episode. And I feel like hopefully that was like useful to the listener. So really, thanks a lot for coming on our show. I'd like to give you the floor if you would like to end with any thoughts. Go ahead. 
Yeah, the challenging is very important. And I appreciate it because interviews where I'm not challenged are just sometimes boring. So being challenged actually tests your arguments and thoughts and they're excellent for teaching. So thank you for that. I just want to thank you for and, and the listeners as well for this opportunity. And uh, hopefully we do it again. And, and follow. Let Adam. me know if you have any questions. I'm happy to answer. Yeah. And follow Adam on you have a pretty active Twitter account. Yes, Amwal Network, just one word, Amwal, A-M-W-A-L Network, and on uh, YouTube as well, Amwal Network. Perfect. Uh, and search it, uh, yeah, and you'll find it, yeah. Perfect. Are there any services that Amwal Network provides other than uh, just the sort of educational content? So the digital assets management side is uh, investing on behalf of just a very small group of very close B2B business to business um, um, friends, uh, business friends. And the other thing is we just recently started a weekly market report for subscription. And those are the two things. Other than that, it's all free content, 100%. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thanks again, Adam. Really appreciate it. And hopefully we can do it again as soon. Thank you, Rakan. Appreciate your time. All right. Likewise. Salam alaikum. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Practical Islamic Finance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it and would like to leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. Until next time, take care of yourself. Assalamu alaikum and peace be upon you all.